may the meditations of our hearts and minds, may the words of my mouth be ever pleasing in your sight as we come to study your word, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. This isn't a particularly cheery place to begin. We thought a lot about joy this morning if you're with us then. I'm afraid we're starting this evening by thinking about loneliness. It's been observed by many people that we live in a very lonely age. And the analysts like to blame different things for that. Globalisation, the change of working habits, the breakdown of the traditional family unit. Ironically enough, the increase in social media, all these things have contributed to a higher degree of people feeling loneliness now than did just a generation ago. I remember reading one article about this time last year in a newspaper which put the number at about 9 in 10 young people, people of my generation, just about, saying they've experienced long bouts of loneliness. And as you could imagine, the last couple of years, the pandemic, have only served to accentuate that problem. So that's the world we live in, a world which feels lonely. But let me ask you this. Is the Christian life any different? Is the life of following Jesus and living for him a lonely life? That's a tricky question because the answer to it ought to be one of two great contrasts. On the one hand, being a Christian, as we are reflecting on this morning, means knowing partnership and fellowship and community with God's people. People with whom we might have very little in common on the face of it, but with whom we are privileged to call brother, sister, father and mother in Christ. I know that many people in my own church back in St Andrews, and I'm sure here, will have had that experience of moving to somewhere completely new, where they know nobody locally, only to find a real warm welcome into a local church their first weekend there. And, and Judy and Billy and I have had that here too. We're so thankful for the welcome we've received from family, family in Christ. And I hope that's your experience too. Whenever you move somewhere new or if you've moved to the area locally yourself recently, the Christian life then, it ought to be one of real life-on-life closeness with fellow believers of all ages. And I hope and pray that's the experience that we've all had. Well, that's all on the one hand, but on the other hand, we know that outside of those contexts, Outside of times like today when we gather together to worship the Lord, to encourage one another, following Jesus can be a profoundly lonely, a profoundly isolating experience. It's all well and good on the Lord's Day when we gather together and we know that we're not alone and we know that we have partnership and we know that we have fellowship. How easy is it to remember that on Monday morning? We might feel like we're the only Christian in our place of work, in our school, in our lecture theatre, wherever we may find ourselves. Maybe we're the only person who's not joining in with some of the distasteful banter that goes on around the workplace. The only person who's refusing to work on the Sabbath. Maybe the only member of our family who's bringing up our children to know Jesus as Lord and to share in Christian values. And everyone else thinks we're mad for it. Or when those children are the only members of their classes at school, the only people in their lectures at university who aren't buying into the spirit of the age. In these kind of situations, away from the warm embrace of our church family, that's when living for Jesus and having to make a stand for Jesus can feel profoundly and painfully lonely. 
Well, you may have noticed in the reading this evening that loneliness was often the experience of King David as well. In Psalm 12, we find God's anointed king feeling utterly, hopelessly surrounded by godless, vile people. And maybe that's an experience that rings true for us at times. What's wonderful, though, is that far from being a bleak and stark and depressing psalm that leaves God's people feeling weak and scared, Psalm 12 is one in which David's heart and our hearts with his are lifted to the deeper truth. That though the surrounding world can feel hostile and God's faithful ones can appear to have completely vanished, there is real security, which is found in the God who sees and who knows all. The God whose words can be trusted and the God who guards those who put their trust in him. So that's the assurance that we want to leave with this evening. The safety of being known by God and of knowing God. And we're going to look at the psalm under two headings. The faithful are lonely in a truth-free world, and the faithful are safe in a trustworthy God. We're lonely in a truth-free world, but safe in a trustworthy God. So first of all, the faithful are lonely in a truth-free world. And you must have noticed that the opening of the psalm does give us a fairly bleak picture of the world surrounding King David. His opening words, save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. This psalm is actually bracketed by the seeming hopelessness of David's situation. Here in verse 1, his opening line is a prayer for God's salvation and help. Things are so bad in Israel that it's as if all the godly and faithful people, those who are loyal to God's commandments... It's as if they vanished completely. And not only that, even by the end of the psalm, by the last verse, the vanished faithful have been replaced by the wicked, those who prowl on every side as vileness is exalted among the children of man, as we read in verse 8. And so that repetition, that topping and tailing of the psalm, they, they lend to this sense of David feeling completely surrounded. On every side. The godly have completely vanished and the wicked are rampant. In verses 2 to 4, we find David expanding on exactly what these wicked people are like. You read verse 2 Everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts, those who say, With our tongue we will prevail, our lips are with us. Who is master over us? So we see here, faithfulness and godliness are next to non-existent, but what is absolutely rampant is an ungodly misuse and abuse of language. The repetition of all these terms is showing us just how much of an issue that is. Now I know in in today's society we can downplay the harm that little white lies so-called can cause, but David is getting at something a lot more sinister in the terms that he uses here. So when he talks about flattering, it carries the implication of deliberately deceiving for personal gain and advancement. When he talks about double-heartedness, that captures just how deep an issue this is. The wicked are knowingly burying the truth deep within themselves because they know that lies are more useful for their own gain and advancement. 
But then notice that though there's a lot of lies and lots of flattery going on, the issue goes even deeper than that. You probably all know somebody who prides themselves on their ability to just sort of blag their way through life. I've got a friend like that. He was able to sweet talk his way out of a speeding ticket once, even though the, the, the policeman had him banged to rights. It was not a, an issue with giving him a ticket. Somehow, by turning up the charm, he managed to drive off with just a warning. That's the kind of thing that I would never get away with, but we all know somebody who, who just seems to be able to talk the way out of any situation. But for David here, this isn't a light-hearted thing. He, he's not talking about cheeky chappies who blag their way through life with a bit of charm. Because we see in verse 4 that the godless have such a level of misplaced confidence in their own abilities. Such misplaced confidence in their own tongues that it's actually become idolatrous. They're so confident in their own ability to lie and deceive and blag their way to the top. They actually think that they will always prevail on their own wits. They actually think that they have no lords who can call them to account, that no one, absolutely no one, not even God himself, can ever hold them back because of the power of their persuasive words. That's how consumed they've become by their ability to use and abuse language for self-advancement. Their ultimate trust now lies in those abilities and not in the God who made them. And that makes perfect sense from if we think of a wider biblical lens, because deception is something we see right at the heart of the fall of man, all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. We see it as a serpent intentionally twists the words of God. Did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And we see it entering the bloodstream of humanity. It's, it's quite sobering, isn't it? The very first recorded words of fallen man are a lie. Adam immediately turns to deception after having sinned. I was afraid, for I was naked, so I hid. First words recorded by a man after the fall, and it's a lie. So that idolatrous, God-rejecting attitude is at the heart of why this is such a major issue for David. He's not merely describing the bluster and blag that people can use to get by. What he's experiencing What's causing David so much pain and anguish, causing him to cry out to God in heartfelt prep, is the complete societal breakdown that comes when people jettison the truth of God and replace it with poisonous but convenient lies. When I was preparing to preach on this psalm, I came across a line from one Jewish scholar who helpfully comments that the origin of all human conflict is that I do not say what I mean, and I do not do what I say. And when we think of it in those terms, who among us hasn't felt the effects of this? Who among us hasn't wanted to echo the prayer of the opening verses, help Lord, save Lord? It's a truly awful, a truly grim thing to live in a society where deception and lies are the norm. And when we think about that, maybe we find our minds instantly jumping to silver-tongued politicians or lawyers who speak legalese or car salesmen who turn up the charm to try and make a seal. Or closer to home, maybe this psalm brings up images of the aloof, distant parent who says that this time they won't miss the sports day, they won't miss the, the prize giving, they won't miss the final assembly. 
only to inevitably let the children die. Those anguished words of, but you promised you'd be there. Another broken promise causing so much pain. Or maybe we think of the person who claims to be a friend, claims to have our best interests at heart, and is telling us what we want to hear. But actually all they're doing is trying to benefit from us. I suppose these things range from the kind of mildly irritating on the one hand to the deeply, really painful on the other, on an individual level. But if we really want to truly see just how far from the truth we've fallen as a society, we actually only need to ask ourselves one question. It's this. Outside of church, who in our world is encouraging me to live for Jesus as Lord? And the answer is nobody. Instead, we're constantly told that we live in a so-called post-truth society. That everywhere we look, we're being encouraged to define ourselves, to live our own truth and be who we want to be. And that all sounds really compelling. It all sounds really inspiring when we see it in movies and TV shows and Instagram posts with nice pictures that tell us how great this life is. But this psalm pulls back the curtain and shows us just how utterly destructive a society becomes when it jettisons the truth. So, of course, being cut adrift from any objective reality and given the freedom to define right and wrong for ourselves, amazingly, has negative consequences. Shouldn't be a surprise that the thing God told us will happen right at the very start of the Bible happens when we try to determine right and wrong, truth and lie for ourselves. It doesn't usher in a happy and fulfilled utopian society. No, it makes things quite, quite grim. And if you don't believe me, just browse the comment section of a YouTube video. Any YouTube video will do. And you'll find a debate raging before too long. People calling each other really nasty names and evoking really horrible images to try and make their point. We've seen for the last few years that the state of public discourse is at an all-time low and people feel entirely free to use language to tear down their opponents and to push their own agenda. And of course we know too, even more sadly, that lies are utterly destructive within the church. That false teachers who promise blessing or cure or an easy life, but who are actually leading people away from the truth of God. Are those who are claiming to be faithful, but they're actually using the power of language to cover up their own moral feelings, their own sins. Those things are deeply sad, deeply tragic when we encounter them among God's people. That's why Charles Spurgeon helpfully commented in his commentary on the psalm that a man is safer among lions than he is among liars. And I would guess that any one of us who has felt the pain, felt the heartbreak and devastation that accompany being let down and lied to and hurt, we know how true that rings for us. All of which is to say that it doesn't take too great a work of the imagination to relate to how anguish David must feel. <coughs> as he realises the destructive lies that surround him. On every side, people are using the words that they say to advance themselves and to keep scriptural truth on mute. And so his solution is surely the right one, to cry out, save Lord, help Lord, may the Lord silence all flattering lips. So you think about how to apply these verses for ourselves then, it's actually 
quite encouraging. It may not feel like it with all that grim stuff we've just reflected on, but it's quite encouraging to see that not much has changed between David's day and ours. After all, if you read Psalm 12 and see that God's anointed king can look around him and feel such anguish at the state of the nation, well, we shouldn't be too surprised by the grimness of trying to uphold God's truth in a post-truth society today. And actually, if the greater David, the one who David is only a shadow of, the Lord Jesus himself faced untruths on every side, faced false accusations of insanity and blasphemy and insurrection, well, if he faced all that, we know that we certainly will too, just as he said we would. So like David and like the Lord Jesus, we cry out to God the Father to save. So where we find that this psalm does reveal more of what's going on in our own world, where it makes us more painfully aware of how our society misuses and abuses language and jettisons the truth in in favour of self-advancing lies, when we realise those things, they ought to provoke us to cry out in prayer too. We should echo David's prayers for God to protect his people from deceptive lies. And that means praying for discernment, for the teaching that we listen to. It means praying for wisdom in knowing how to respond to the lies that the world bombards us with all the time. But it also means conviction, doesn't it? It also means conviction for us to turn away from the falsehoods that we ourselves can perpetuate. I asked earlier who among us hasn't felt the effects of a world that's replaced truth for destructive deception. But actually we know that when we're being honest, not one of us can claim that we've never been a part of the problem in that area. Not one of us can claim that we've never used the words that we say to put other people down instead of building them up. That we've never used the words we say to put ourselves forward to give a a better picture of who we are and disregard what we know is true and right. And so actually in that regard, this psalm should provoke all of us to cry, save Lord, help Lord, as we ask for forgiveness for the times when we know that we have used our words to destroy instead of to build up and grow. And we should pray, save Lord too, for more people to hear the truth of the gospel and to be active at getting that truth out there in a world which so desperately, desperately hungers and thirsts after something real, something true. We do all that knowing that like David and like the Lord Jesus, as they face the deceptive hostility of the world, wonderfully we find our ultimate security in God himself. That leads us to our second point, and I hope more encouragingly that the faithful are safe in a trustworthy God. We were in any doubt before, then these verses show us how crying out to God is the entirely right response to the prevalence of destructive lies as we get into verses 5 to 7. Most chiefly of all, because of the wonderful response of God Himself to David's prayers, recorded for us there in verse 5. Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. 
you might have heard Bible teachers talking about a chiasm or sandwich structure in some of the Psalms. That was basically a common tool used in Hebrew poetry to draw comparisons between two different ideas. So, for example, the lies of the world on the one hand and the trustworthy words of God on the other. And usually when we have a sandwich structure, what the, the author is trying to do is draw our attention to the thing that's in the middle. And so here in Psalm 12, verse 5 lies right at the heart. It's the key ingredient in the middle of the sandwich, if you will, which draws Israel's attention and our attention to this truth. The truth that God hears the prayers of his people, that he hears them and he promises to protect them and care for them. There are lots of hard things to hear in Psalm 12. And on first reading, it really can come across as quite bleak. But wonderfully, the big takeaway truth which lies at the heart of the psalm is there in verse 5. The truth that God hears, that God cares, and that God acts. So a bit of a reference here back to Psalm 10. There, David prays for God to arise because of his perceived ambivalence in the face of wickedness. And wonderfully here, two psalms later, it is God himself who promises that he will arise. Back in Psalm 10, David says in faith that God sees the actions of the wicked. Here, we get confirmation of just that. He knows that his people, the poor and the needy of spirit, are exploited, and he moves to intervene. Which, by the way, that reveals some more of the fruits of the deception described above. These charming deceivers, they may be promising the world, but in fact, They are exploiting the vulnerable, as charmers often do. The poor are plundered, and the needy groan because of godless liars. But God is not blind to this. If you were to read through Psalms 9 to 11, you'd see that the Lord throughout those Psalms is a God who sits in judgment, who examines both righteous and wicked. And he is the God here who promises to arise who promises to be active in the face of wickedness and to place his people in safety. So as I mentioned before, there's a comparison here drawn between the words of the wicked that we saw in verses 2 to 4 and the words of God himself, which we note in verses 6 and 7. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace in the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them You will guard us from this generation forever. I think one of the sad things about our society is that we've become so used to being lied to that it can make us a little bit uh, unwilling to trust anybody. It's why our gut reaction to an advert for a new miracle product can usually be, you know, don't don't sound right to me. And even when we get a message from a friend, this happened to me a while ago, a good friend of mine, Simon, I got a message from him and the the line of the message was, you won't believe what's happening in this video with a link. And I thought, well, that's clearly a virus. That's clearly he's been hacked. And he sent me this video. Like, he doesn't know he's done it. If I click on that link, I'll get a virus on my computer. I'm going to leave that. And Simon messaged me later that night saying, why didn't you watch the video I sent you? I thought you'd really enjoy it. It's sad that we've become so used to being lied to that our reaction to getting a message from a trusted friend can be, you know, that's dangerous. I'll leave it alone. But that's why verses 6 to 7 are so reassuring. For David, there's complete assurance here in verse 6 that quite unlike any of the grand promises of the liars who surround him, he can actually have total confidence in God's promises. 
Because God's words aren't flattery. God's words are not empty boats. God's words are pure. Let's notice that repetition. God's words are pure, refined, purified, i.e. there's absolutely nothing imperfect or untrustworthy about what God says. A new story you might have missed in the last year. It really wasn't a very big one, but I guess I was like procrastinating one morning and I clicked on this link on the BBC website. Apparently a man won a solid gold beer can from a company doing a promotional offer. And he won this competition, thought he was getting a can made of pure gold, thought I'll sell that then, make a bit of money, only to find that it wasn't pure gold at all, it was bronze plated in gold, a very thin layer of gold, so he was quite disappointed when it sold for a lot less than he expected. Well, that's not the kind of thing that God does. God doesn't hoodwink his people. God's words are worth what they appear. And like an entirely pure, precious metal, that's what God's words are. One of the commentators puts it like this, that there is a total contrast between the shifting, distorting, and ultimately powerless words of the wicked and the totally pure utterances of Yahweh that accomplish exactly what they promise. Hence David's confidence in verse 7. God will keep his promises. Though everyone around him may break theirs, God will keep his people safe, even in the midst of a godless generation on the take. One of the things that I really appreciate about Psalm 12 is how it ends in much the same way it began. It almost doesn't seem to make sense as we read it. The transition between Verses 7 and 8. Verse 7, you, Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. And we might expect the psalm to end there. Or we might expect verse 8 to read, because of you, the wicked are completely defeated. Instead, we read, on every side, the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of man. The minister mentioned earlier in welcoming me this morning that I studied English literature in Newcastle. I do love a good read. One of my favourite books is a novel called uh, No Country for Old Men by an American writer by Cormac McCarthy. You may have read it or seen the film from a few years ago. Uh, In this book, we find an ageing, old-school sheriff in the American West who pursues this cold-blooded killer around small-town, rural USA. And the whole time as the sheriff is pursuing the killer, we're thinking that the story's building to a big climax, a big showdown where the sheriff will win. Instead, though, the story just peters out. It comes to an end. The sheriff retires with the killer still on the loose. No justice is dealt. And the take-home message of the whole book is that this is a cruel and unforgiving world where evil not only goes unchecked, it actually gets worse and worse. Again, not a very cheery read, but very well written. We might think that, on first glance, Psalm 12 is petering out in a similarly devastating way. I want to actually suggest that it's quite reassuring for us that by verse 8, by the end of the psalm, David's circumstances haven't changed at all. In spite of the fact that he still feels completely surrounded by the wicked, by the vile, by godless men, the confidence with which he prays, verse 7, you, O Lord, will guard this generation forever, is undiminished. We said at the start of our time together that the Christian life can indeed feel profoundly, painfully lonely. 
meeting together like this to encourage one another doesn't necessarily mean that work tomorrow morning or school in September will become any different. Our circumstances may not change one bit. That's not the promise of this psalm. Instead, the promise of Psalm 12 is that though we continue to live in a world where wickedness, lies, and deceit are rampant, in God himself we have a sure and certain place of security, of safety. Those in verse 4 who are saying with our tongues we will prevail, ultimately they won't. When God acts to judge, even the most silver-tongued, persuasive, and compelling of his enemies will be left utterly speechless. And so the security that they think they have in their intellect and language is just an illusion. Whereas on the other hand, God's people, God's people who look weak, who feel oppressed and downtrodden, well, we have the ultimate, true security of knowing that we will be placed in safety. Because we know that the Lord Jesus is our perfect refuge, our rock. If we are in him, we know that we cannot come to any ultimate harm. And so as we draw to the close, there's a really helpful reminder in this psalm that we should be careful what we listen to, that we live in a world full of falsehoods and we should root ourselves in the truth of God's word. That's absolutely vital. But there's also a reminder to us that we really, truly do find our safety in God himself, the God who guards us. God who, in Christ, places us in the safety for which we long. Maybe for some among us this evening, we've been trying to find comfort in the lies of the world and we find them lacking if that's the case if christianity is maybe slightly new to you let me urge you please come and place your trust in a god who never lies even for the first time please come and know the real safety that comes from having sins forgiven and being kept eternally secure in the lord jesus but for those of us who are trusting in the Lord Jesus already. Maybe we have been for many years. Let's take great heart in what we already know to be true. It can and it often will feel that just like David here, we're surrounded by godless lies. Lies in the world and lies by those claiming to be in the church. But even as this continues to be the case, well, we have God's perfect promises that we can lean on. We have the safety of the certain hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. God will keep his promises. And as we turn to him, will keep and guard us from a world flattering to deceive as we root ourselves in him and in his perfect and pure, infallible word. Why don't we stand to join in prayer as we close. <clears throat> God our Father, we thank you that your words are trustworthy and true. And so we can have great confidence that in Christ you keep us eternally secure. And so along with David here, we pray, save the Lord. We pray that you would protect and guard your people from a hostile world. 
We pray that you would forgive us our many sins. Pray that you would forgive us for how we ourselves have used our words to deceive and to advance ourselves. We pray that you would draw many to turn away from lies and deceit and into hearing and receiving the truth of your word. All these things we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.